Okay, folks, Luke 23, starting in verse 44. We're going to be reading verses 44 to 56. This is the Word of God. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Lord, as we look at this text, we realize we're going into the Holy of Holies to see the final minutes of the life of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray you'd open our eyes to what took place there. Show us the glory of the death of our Savior. Show us how we should respond to his death. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to be focusing on the very final hours and final minutes of the life of Jesus Christ. And so in a real sense, I look at this as like entering into the Holy of Holies, because here we're going to behold the death of our God. And even saying that phrase sounds crazy, the death of our God, because God is immortal. God had no beginning. God will have no end. He's the creator of all things. How can God die, right? It's just a crazy, it's an oxymoron to talk about the death of God, except for the fact that we remember that our God became a man, that he assumed a human nature. And this human nature was capable of getting tired or getting hungry or thirsty or suffering. And this human nature was capable of dying. So we are going to watch and behold this morning the death of God. I refer back to that wonderful hymn of Charles Wesley, And Can It Be? The chorus says, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldest die for me? And that's really what the Christian faith, when you boil it down, is all about. God dies for the creatures. Now, if Jesus really is God, then wouldn't we expect his death to be kind of unusual? I mean, we'd also consider his birth would probably be unusual. And we're not disappointed there, are we? His birth was unusual. Jesus was born of a virgin. That's unusual enough. 
His mother received an angelic visitation. That's pretty unusual. His adoptive father, Joseph, received another angelic visitation. There was a star put in the sky over the place where he was born. All of this was very unusual. That's what we would expect if God entered into the world, right? Well, I think we'd also expect something similar when God exits the world, when God dies. And we're not disappointed when we come to the scriptures because all the way through the trial, up until the final breath that Jesus took, it's all very unusual. Think about the trial itself. Jesus has been maliciously accused by his enemies over and over of things that he never committed. But yet, how, how does Jesus respond? No threats. He doesn't insult them. He doesn't lash out at them. He doesn't take vengeance on them. Just very meekly and mildly, he remains mute, silent through the whole ordeal. Now that's weird. That's unusual from human standards. Later, when they're leading him to the cross, he meets this big group of women who are mourning and weeping for him. And you would think that he would just kind of take that in and maybe be comforted by that and try to pity himself. But instead, he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because there's coming a day when you're going to wish that you had never had any children. I mean, that's kind of strange. And then when they finally nail him to a cross, instead of praying that God would judge his enemies and destroy them, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he notices he's got a, a thief on his right and a thief on his left. And he turns to one of those thieves and he says, Today, truly, you will be with me in paradise. This is all different than we would normally expect. But that's just the beginning. As we're going to see today, there's more to come. What I want to do this morning is to look at the extraordinary death of Jesus in two parts. First of all, I want to show you some supernatural signs that attended his death. There's three of them. And then I want to show you the responses of people to his death. And there are four different persons or group of, groups of people that I want to show how they responded to what happened when Jesus died. So first of all, let's look at the signs that accompanied the death of Jesus. There are three of them. The first one was an eerie darkness. Look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured. Now, if you were to read Mark fifteen twenty-five, it says that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. The way Jews computed time is they started their day at 6 a.m., so the third hour was 9 a.m. Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 in the morning. But our text here says that at the sixth hour, which would be noon, until the ninth hour, which would be three in the afternoon, from noon to three, this darkness fell, not just upon the city of, of Jerusalem, but upon the whole land, the land of Palestine. There was this crazy, weird darkness that just descended all over the land, an eerie darkness. Now, some people have tried to say, well, that was just an eclipse. There was no nothing... Nothing unusual too much about that. It was just an eclipse. The problem with that is that Passover is always held on a full moon, and you don't have eclipses when there's a full moon. So you can't just assign some natural explanation to this darkness. This was a supernatural darkness. Why, why was there this darkness? It's because God did it. 
God was trying to communicate something through this darkness. Now, think about the first three hours of the cross. I would call this a comedy. If we're going to look at the, the, the time Jesus spent on the cross, the first three hours are a comedy. The last three hours are a drama. The first three hours are a comedy because it's filled with taunting and jeering and mocking and scorning. You've got the religious leaders in on it. You've got the soldiers mocking him. You have the two thieves on either side of Jesus mocking him. Everybody's making fun of Jesus. Big comedy, right? Well, after three hours, it turns into a drama. Because after three hours, nobody's mocking anymore. They can't even see each other anymore. There's this thick darkness that comes down. God is showing them something, and no longer is it a joke. We don't even find Jesus talking anymore until the very end of these three hours. There's just silence. There's just darkness everywhere. And I believe what's taking place is God is manifesting His presence in judgment through that darkness. And that's, that's not unusual. We find this happening over and over in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 10, you remember when God brought all those um, judgments, those plagues upon the Egyptians because he wanted to free his people and bring them out of Egypt and take them to the promised land? He, he brought plague after plague after plague. Well, in Exodus 10, 21, one of those plagues was darkness. It says there it was a darkness that could be felt. Have you ever felt darkness? I mean, I wonder what that means. It was just a an eerie, thick darkness that caused everybody just to wonder what in the world is going on here. We have a similar darkness here at the cross. In Joshua 24, verse 7, let me just read that to you. This speaks about how the children of Israel had been freed from Egypt. They were fleeing from the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were racing up to them, that the children of Israel had the Red Sea in front of them, so there's nowhere they can go. Behind them, they've got the soldiers racing after them in their chariots, and they're hemmed in on every side. And Joshua 24, 7 says, But when they cried out to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness for a long time. So when God was about to judge the Egyptians, he brought this darkness to separate his people from the Egyptian people. He brought darkness upon the Egyptians in the plague to demonstrate this judgment he was bringing upon the nation. And then consider when Jesus talked about hell. Do you remember one of the phrases he used to describe it? Outer darkness. That's how he described hell in some places. Outer darkness. What I believe we have here in this darkness of the cross is the counterpart to the outer darkness of hell, the darkness of the cross. God brought hell to Jerusalem that day, if you can think of it in those terms. God was pouring out his wrath in judgment. That's why the sky is dark, because God in his fury is unleashing his vengeance upon evil and sin and iniquity that his soul hates. But the interesting thing is he wasn't bringing that fury and that wrath upon the soldiers, although they deserved it, or the religious leaders, although they deserved it, or the people of Israel, although they deserved it. He was bringing his wrath upon his own perfect, spotless, beloved son, 
that day. All the fury of heaven was being poured out upon Jesus Christ, who became the substitute sin bearer, the one taking the wrath of God. That's what a propitiation means. It's a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. So here Jesus stands in the place of all those people, and God's wrath that was meant for them is poured on him, and he absorbs it, and he takes it, and he bears it. That's why the sky is dark. This darkness was not the absence of God. This darkness was the presence of God in wrath. And you know, a lot of people talk about hell. Well, hell, hell is just being separated from God forever. It's not really true. Read Revelation 14, 9 through 11. It says that the wrath of the Lamb and of the holy angels will be in that place of hell. It is the loving, gracious presence of God removed from people forever. That's true but not his total presence, his wrathful presence will be upon them for all eternity. It's crazy to think of it, but that's exactly what the scriptures teach. So no, this isn't the absence of God. It's Jesus bearing the penalty for sin. Now, think about it. The wicked will be in hell for all eternity, and they will never be able to fully pay for all their sins. If they were able to, they'd be released, right? There would be no more sin to be punished for. They're not able to do it. But here Jesus in six hours is able to fully pay for sin. How is that possible? Why would a wicked person not be able to pay for their sins for all eternity and Jesus in six hours can do it? Anybody know? It's because of the person who is suffering. The worth, the value of the one on that cross We've got God on that cross, folks. Can you ascribe a value to God? There's no compared to the God of the universe. And only an infinite person can absorb infinite wrath. But Jesus was an infinite person, and so he was able to take the wrath that was due you and due me. Now, what I want to share with you this morning, what I want you to get from this is that if you are in Christ, there's no more wrath for you. It's gone. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's as though God took out his gun and shot all of his bullets into the heart of Jesus, and there's no ammunition left. He took his quiver and all those arrows, and he shot all those arrows into his son. He's got no arrows left for you or for me if we are in his son. There's, God is not angry with his people anymore. Yes, he disciplines us, doesn't he? But he's not angry with us. He doesn't have wrath for us. He has grace and mercy and love for all eternity, but wrath is gone because Jesus took it. So if you ever struggle with that idea, whether God's angry with you, I want you to settle this this morning. Jesus is the propitiation for your sin. He's the propitiation, the wrath-averting sacrifice for your sin. God loves you. So that's the first sign that attended the death of Christ. Let's look at the second one. Not only do we have an airy darkness, we've got a torn veil. Verse 45 says, The veil of the temple was torn in two. Now Matthew 27.51 says that it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Does that tell you anything? If it said it was torn from the bottom to the top, what would we expect? Men did it. 
You got a tug of war, maybe 15 guys on either side trying to pull that thing. But I want to share with you this veil was 60 feet high. That's a six-story building. 40 feet wide, and it was four inches thick. Nobody could tear it anyway, even if they wanted to. (laughs) And they didn't have a ladder tall enough to reach the top. God tore the veil. God was making another point. He made a point in the darkness that he had propitiated his own wrath through this substitutionary sacrifice. Propitiation was taught in darkness. There's another truth taught here in the torn veil. And the truth taught here is the truth of reconciliation. Can you just imagine the the scene going on down at the temple at this time? There's darkness for from 12 to 3 o'clock. And that darkness, remember, is in the brightest part of the day. And especially when you go to visit Jerusalem in the spring, in March or April, it's warm and it's sunny, usually, during those days. And it was during that brightest part of the day that this darkness enveloped it. But think about the priests in the temple. All of a sudden, there's darkness. And they have to get ready to slaughter thousands and thousands of sacrificial lambs. This is the Passover. That's what they did on this day. So all the priests are getting together. They're in the temple. They're getting everything ready to get started on slaughtering the lambs. And all of a sudden, everything's thrown into confusion and chaos. They can't see each other. They don't know where they're going. They're bumping into each other. They're going, what in the world is happening? And then at 3 o'clock, all of a sudden, the lights come back on. And then they start hearing this weird, eerie, ripping sound from inside the temple. And when they go into the temple, they are shocked and horrified by what they see because the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place is ripped in two and and they're able to see inside. Something that had never, ever happened before. Let me just give you a little bit of history. First there was the tabernacle, later that was replaced by the temple, but in both of these places you had a holy place, and then there was a veil, and then on the other side of the veil there was the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And this holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a slab of pure gold, and this this Ark, this slab of gold was called the mercy seat, and this was the throne of God. This is where God's presence emanated from. The glory of God was there in the Holy of Holies. So, the ordinary man would never be able to actually go inside the Holy of Holies and and view the presence of God. He would have been destroyed if he tried. No man can see God and live, the Bible says. And only one man could go into this Holy of Holies, and he could only do it on one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement. If he tried to go any other day, he would be destroyed. And he couldn't even go in there without elaborate preparation. He had to wash himself, bathe himself. He had to put on special clothing. He had to kill a goat and take its blood. And then on the other hand, he had to take this altar of incense so that the incense would cover his eyes so he couldn't directly look upon God's glory. And he could only get in there, sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat and get out. In fact, he wore this rope <laughs> tied around his foot with with a... Uh, with these bells, so that if the bells stopped jangling, somebody would grab the rope and pull them out because nobody else could go in there to get them or they'd die. I mean, that's how serious it was to approach God in His holiness. And here, all of a sudden, the veil's ripped and everybody is looking into this place. You see, the veil acted as a barrier between a holy God 
and a sinful people. It shielded the people from irreverently or carelessly entering the holy presence of God and being destroyed by His presence. And all of a sudden, there's no more veil. And what God is communicating is that the way into the holiest of all has been made open for anybody, not just a high priest, but for anybody who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. Because over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says that Jesus' flesh was the veil. When his flesh was rent, it's symbolic of that temple, or the, the veil in the temple being rent. Jesus is our way into the very intimate, holy presence of God Almighty. Let me share some scripture with you that teach us that. This is, comes out to us in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the writer's exhorting us, therefore, draw near with confidence. You're not shut out from God's presence. God wants you into the Holy of Holies. He wants you drawing near into His presence. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, not the blood of that goat that was slain by the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, it's by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So God is exhorting his people, come, come near me. I, I've ripped the veil. The way of access is open. Why are you standing at a distance? Is it because you feel unworthy? Well, guess what? Everybody in the world is unworthy. That should not keep you coming from coming because I have justified you by my blood. I pronounce you as righteous as my son. You are welcome. Remember the song we sing? Boldly I approach your throne. Blameless now I'm running home. By your blood, not by my righteousness, by your blood I come. Welcomed as your own into the arms of majesty. So do not let your own sense of sin keep you from entering in the Holy of Holies. This is a call for God's people to come to Him in prayer, to approach the throne of grace, to find grace and help in time of need. And all of us have time of need. All of us. Boldly, confidently, Jesus welcomes you. He shed His blood so that you could get into that room. <laughs> the veil's ripped to show you that you can have access. Don't don't neglect access to the very throne of God. And then there's a third sign. We have a, an eerie darkness, a torn veil. The third one is a loud cry. Verse 46 of Luke 23. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. Now, I believe this was also a supernatural sign. And you say, well, Brian, why would you think someone crying loudly would be a supernatural sign? 
It's because when people were on a cross, they died of asphyxiation. They couldn't draw a breath. A person in that condition does not have the strength to shout or to cry loudly. They can barely whisper. They, they're using, when, by the time they die, they're incoherent. No one is shouting when they die on a cross. Jesus shouted when he, when he died, which tells me something very important. Jesus was not some kind of a helpless victim whose life was ripped away from him against his will. Jesus was a great conqueror who gave up his life when he wanted to. He was in full control of when he died. He decided when his spirit would leave and go to the Father. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Nobody drug out his spirit by taking his life. He gave up his spirit when it was time. See, usually people would die on a cross for two or three days. It was unheard of that somebody would die in six hours. The reason why Jesus died then is because it was his time to die. He determined when he would die. So he's a conqueror, shouting at the top of his lungs in full strength. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me in John ten eighteen, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So he had authority to lay it down when he decided to, and he had authority to take it back up when he decided to. Now, what was it that Jesus cried? His, his cry was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Notice a slight change here. Jesus had just previous to this cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he's crying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's gone from addressing the divine being as my God to addressing him as my Father. I sense when he's addressing God as my God, my God, that he, he perceives distance, right? He feels like he's been abandoned and forsaken by the Father. And so in, in address, instead of addressing him in the intimate terms of Father, he's my God, my God, why did you go away? Why did you abandon me? Why did you leave me alone to do this all by myself? And his humanness, he's feeling that. But something had broken through, and now he says, My Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Atonement had been made. The sense of closeness and intimacy had been restored, and now all that was left is for him to give up his spirit to God and die. And it was over. Um... He's quoting here Psalm 31.5, which for the Jews was kind of like a now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayer that they would pray before they went to bed. Into your hands I commit my spirit. When Jesus died, where did he go? Where did his spirit go? Well, according to this verse, uh, it went to the Father. Father, into your hands, the hands of the Father. He committed his spirit. Um, he said to the thief, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me where? Paradise. Paradise, according to 2 Corinthians 12, is the third heaven or the direct immediate place of the presence of God. Heaven, we would call it. Um, and so that for this reason, I do not believe the, the theory that when Jesus died, his spirit went down into the middle of the earth somewhere and preached to demons and preached to lost people. I know that can be based on a verse in 1 Peter 3, but I think there's a better interpretation of that. I believe Jesus went to heaven. I believe his spirit went into the Father's presence. He went to paradise. And then later on, that spirit was reunited to a glorified body. 
on Easter morning. And friends, that's where your spirit is going to go if you're in Christ. Your spirit is going to go to be with the Father. To be absent from your body is to be present with your Lord. It's far better to depart and to be with Christ. Amen? So that's what you have to look forward to, the presence of the Father. So there we have three attending signs, an eerie darkness, a torn veil, and a loud cry. Let's look at the responses of different people to Christ's death. And we've got four different people or groups of people listed here. We've got the centurion, we've got the crowds, we've got the women, and we've got Joseph of Arimathea. And we have the response that all of them made to Jesus' death. First of all, the centurion. Uh, verse 47, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Now what is a centurion? We, we read about these guys in the Bible from time to time. There's one in Acts chapter 10. There's one here. Um, a centurion was a Roman commander over a century. That's why they called them centurions. And a century was 100 soldiers. So the way the Roman army worked is that it was comprised of about 25 legions. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. So that would be a, a, an army of 150,000 men that the Romans had capable of going to war with. So 25 of these legions, within each legion of 6,000 men, you had 10 different cohorts. A cohort was 600 men. And within each cohort, you had six centuries. So the, the century was the smallest unit of a Roman army, a hundred fighting men. And you had a centurion who was the leader, the commander of those men. He had proven himself in battle. That's why they made him the leader of that century. He had proven himself in terms of bravery and courage and skill and warfare. He was not the kind of leader that would tell his troops to go into war and he'd sit back here in an ivory tower and watch what they did. He was leading them into the charge. Kind of like the generals in the Civil War. They were leading their men into battle. Same kind of thing. Now, this centurion and his soldiers have been involved with the trial and the death of Jesus all along. They were there. In fact, they were the ones that mocked Jesus earlier in Luke 23. Do you remember where it says they put a gorgeous robe on him? And they put a reed in his hand pretending it was a scepter? And they put some thorns together, pushed it on his head and said, that's your royal crown. And then they bowed down to him and said, hail, king of the Jews. Big joke, right? That was this centurion and his soldiers. There, it says also they're spitting upon him. Disgracefully. These guys were hardened soldiers. They killed for a living. They executed people for a living. But we have to also remember that this centurion and his soldiers had heard all of the accusations made against Jesus. They had heard people say that, you know, he's guilty of sedition. He leads the nation astray. He says that he's another king in competition to Caesar. They heard all of that stuff. But they also heard the declarations of innocent. Over and over again, people are saying, I find no guilt in this man. I, I, there's nothing here deserving of death. Over and over, this kind of thing was being proclaimed. They also saw the abuse that was leveled on him and how Jesus responded with meekness and majesty through the whole thing. Never threatening, never retaliating. And these soldiers showed Jesus no mercy. 
They drove those nails through his wrists and through his feet just like they would drive them through anybody else's hands and feet. And then they cast lots for his garments. Remember that? And then they sat down to watch him die, just like they did with everybody else. They just kind of waited it out until he was dead. They had heard Jesus pray from that cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They had heard Jesus pronounce to that thief on his right, truly today you're going to be with me in paradise. They saw that darkness descend upon the whole land. And then they heard him shout, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They'd never heard any other person ever die of crucifixion, shouting and then dying immediately. This was weird. This was eerie. This was crazy. And so what's his response after viewing all of that? Verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four gives us a little bit more insight into what he said. Matthew 27, verse 54 says, Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Here is a hardened Gentile who comes to the conclusion that Jesus had to be the Son of God. I believe he made both statements. He said, This man was innocent. This man was the Son of God. They made both statements. Now, why would he say this man was the Son of God? Earlier in Luke 22, verse 70, I I believe he was probably present when the Sanhedrin put him on trial and said, Are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said, Yes, I am. And that got the wheels in their mind turning. He thinks he's the Son of God? Well, by the time he actually ends up dying, they're convinced that he is, just by watching how he died, watching the majesty of, of this man. He is the Son of God. And he he was innocent of all these crimes that he was accused of. So that gives me hope that perhaps the centurion was converted. Maybe he was one of the fruits of Jesus' death. Have you ever made the same confession that the centurion made? I believe he's innocent. Not only that, I believe he's holy. Not only that, I believe that he is the Son of God. I hope you can make the same good confession of faith that he made. If you struggle with being a doubter or a skeptic, I just want to encourage you, there's enough evidence to put your doubts and your skepticism aside. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. So that's how the centurion responded. Let's look at the crowds. Verse 48. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle when they observed what had happened began to return beating their breasts. Now, who was included in the crowds? This would be everybody who came to the cross for amusement, for some entertainment. This is a diversion. Hey, there's someone, some people are going to be crucified. Let's go watch it. It says they came for the spectacle. This was a big spectacle. Now, they didn't have a lot of, they didn't have TV and they didn't have video games. And so what they did for entertainment is they watched people get crucified. They would come and just watch the happenings. So here is the crowd. These are not saved people. These are just people that are kind of curious as to what's going on. And it's possible that this crowd could have been the very same crowd 
a week before that was yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. Save now, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And putting down palm branches, taking their coats off and putting them in the street for him to ride over. Then a few days later, the chief priests are able to convince them to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. So they've gone to euphoric joy, to hateful animosity, and now the final emotion we see them having is this, they're beating their breasts, which signifies remorse and guilt and repentance for what they have done. You see, the only other place we find people beating their breasts Well, the only one that I could consider was Luke 18, where Jesus tells the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And he says the tax collector was afar off from that holy man over there. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He's got him fixed on the ground and he's beating his breasts, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am the sinner. So beating the breasts has to do with a sense of guilt, conviction of sin, remorse, for what you have done, and hopefully even a spirit of repentance. So here we have the crowd. How did they respond to the death of Jesus? They went home beating their breasts. They were convinced they had they just executed a, a, an innocent man who'd done nothing wrong. And hopefully some of them went home convict, convinced of their sin. Perhaps many of those were ones converted a few weeks later on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached. This is a right response. The centurion had a right response. You're the son of God. You're innocent. The crowds had the right response. They beat their breasts. Let's look at thirdly, the women in verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Now turn over to verse 55. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. These women were women disciples of Jesus. These women loved Christ. In fact, if you want to just go back in Luke to chapter 8, we we meet them. Luke 8, verse 2. says, There are also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So what do we have here? We've got a bunch of women that were following Jesus around when he traveled from place to place, and they were just serving the Lord. They were giving money to to support him. He needed food to eat, and so they would buy the food. Maybe they were cooking the food. They were doing anything they could to minister to the Lord and to his disciples. They have been following him for months now, and they followed him all the way from Galilee up north down to Jerusalem, and they are there at the foot of the cross watching this whole spectacle when Jesus dies. Now, verse 55 says, Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Why is that statement important? It's important because of one of the theories... It's called the stolen body theory. 
It's called, they went to the wrong tomb, theory. <laughs> In other words, some people have said Jesus never really rose from the dead. What happened on that two days later, three days later, that they all went to the wrong tomb. And so when they looked in that tomb, they didn't see anything, and uh, they couldn't find the body. The body was not there, but they, they, they decided that Jesus never really rose from the dead, that everybody went to the wrong tomb. Well, here it says that there's a bunch of women. They're, they're at the tomb. They're watching the body being laid in the tomb. Are we to really... Are we really supposed to believe that two days later, this is a Friday, this is a Sunday morning, two days later, all of those women cannot figure out where that tomb was? I mean, maybe maybe one of them could have got mixed up, but all the rest are going to set them straight, right? It's just crazy. And there's another theory. It's called the swoon theory. Have you ever heard of that one? Jesus never really died. He just went into a swoon. And they laid him in this tomb. Now, does it help somebody to revive if you put... If they won't go into a swoon and you put them into an airtight tomb, no, it kills them. It doesn't call them, cause them to revive. And if the swoon theory is accurate, that means that Jesus would have had to re revive and then roll away a stone that three women felt incapable of moving and then walk on pierced feet seven and a half miles to Emmaus. I mean, does that sound logical to you? doesn't to me. Verse 55 and 56 says that they were there when this body was laid in the tomb. They would have checked out the body. Folks, if anybody would have known whether Jesus was dead or not, it would have been the centurion. He was responsible to Pilate. In fact, he had to tell Pilate when the bodies were dead so that they could be taken off the cross. The centurion would have known. But even if he got it wrong, these women who loved him and Joseph of Arimathea who loved Christ, if there was any doubt whether he was, he was alive or not, they wouldn't have put him in this tomb and sealed it up. So the women respond by noticing carefully where he's laid and noticing carefully that the body was really dead. And that helps us it gives us evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then there's a fourth person here, Joseph of Arimathea. And we're told quite a bit about him from verse 50 to 56. This is the only place in the Bible where he shows up, right at the death of Jesus. The only place. Let me just tell you some of the things we learn about him. He comes up in all four Gospels, interestingly. We're told he's a member of the council which means the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling body of the Jews. He was one of the, in fact, it says he was a prominent member of the council. So he was a, an important figurehead within the Sanhedrin. Uh, we're also told that he was a righteous man and that he had been waiting for the kingdom of God. Just like Anna and Simeon, when Jesus was born, we're told that they were waiting for the kingdom of God. Here is another remnant one of God's elect people within Judaism, this Joseph. Um, we're also told that he was rich in Matthew 27, verse 57. And we're told that he was a secret disciple, that he was a disciple, but that he would he was a disciple in secret because for fear of the Jews. So there's a lot that the Bible tells us about this man. Um, no doubt he was a secret disciple because... He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and everybody else that was a member of the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus dead. And he's kind of like the odd man out, you know. He doesn't believe that they ought to kill Jesus. He believes he's innocent. He believes he's the Messiah. He's a follower of Jesus, but he's trying to keep it under wraps because he doesn't want the rest of the Sanhedrin 
to boot him out. But finally, the last straw was when they actually killed his Messiah. And then he says, hey, I'm just going to let the chips fall wherever they weigh. I'm for him. And so he publicly goes to Pilate and says, can I have the body? Would you let me give him a decent burial? We also know that because he was rich, he had bought this plot, this, this, this tomb. There's nobody buried in it yet. Probably he had bought it for himself and his family members. But yet, there was nobody buried there yet. And so now he decides, no, I'm just going to devote this tomb to Jesus. And he takes the body. He gets permission from Pilate to bury it. He wraps him in linen. And then he lays him on a slab there within that tomb, rolls this heavy stone. And not every tomb had these heavy, uh, these like a circular rock that you'd roll in front of the entrance. That was only sometimes. But he, he put that in front of it. And then he had um, the Romans put a seal over that, which meant that if anybody broke the seal, they were liable for breaking the law and could be executed. And he was left there. The women, since he was buried so hastily, he wasn't given a proper burial. And so the women want to bring these spices. That was their way of embalming the dead. They wanted to come back three days later, open up the linen wrappings, pour in all the spices, and wrap, wrap them back up. So that's Joseph of Arimathea. How did he respond to Jesus Christ in his death? He responded by coming out and making an open public profession of his faith in Christ and then using his wealth to honor and dignify Jesus Christ. He used his money and his possessions to exalt Jesus. I've just been trying to memorize the book of Philippians. And one of the verses is in um, chapter 1 where Paul says, whether by life or by death, it's my purpose to exalt Jesus Christ. And we see the spirit of a true disciple coming out here in Joseph. It took him a while, didn't it? To overcome the fear of man. But his true colors, the, the true faith being birthed within his soul comes out finally and he says, He's my Lord. He's my Messiah. He's my God. I'm going to use the money that I have to honor him and to exalt him. So what do we find here from the different responses? We found somebody that confessed Jesus as the Son of God and innocent. We found other people going home beating their breasts in remorse and repentance for their sin. We find women carefully examining where the body was laid so that we have evidence that he actually rose from the dead. And we've got somebody else using his wealth to honor Jesus Christ. I submit to you that those four responses are given to us because we should go and do likewise. Have you made a confession Jesus is the Son? Have you beat your breasts over your sin? Repentance and remorse for the sin that God convicts you of? I mean, not just flippantly saying, yeah, I guess, Lord, that was wrong, but really feeling guilty and sorrowful over the sin you've committed. Have you examined the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and been firmly convinced in your own mind? And have you used anything that God has given you, whether it's money or your possessions, to bring him honor and glory? And not only that, let's just take a look at the first half. The darkness showing that Jesus bore God's wrath. Do you believe that? Are you freed from a sense of God's wrath and condemnation because you trust in his blood? 
Do you see the veil ripped in two? And do you take advantage of that access to go into the Holy of Holies daily and meet with God? What a blessing. What stupidity to neglect being able to go into the Holy of Holies when the veil is rent. I mean, how how crazy can we be to go on day after day and kind of ignore the fact that we have an audience with the God of the universe, right? And then thirdly, that third sign, he uttered a loud cry as he was dying, showing that he was a mighty savior, that no man could take his life away. But he gave it up for you. He gave it up for me. And he was in full control of the details of his death. He's the sovereign one. This is our God. And this is how he wants us to respond to him. Lord, I do pray this morning that you'd help us as your people to to respond rightly. We pray that we would follow the good examples of the people we see here in Scripture today. The Lord, you'd show us your glory. Help us to pursue you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.